Logical Progression, Year 4, Chapter 13, Lesson 5. Okay, so um, I wanted to have an efficient lesson today, insha'Allah. Um, I noticed that I was reviewing last week's lesson on the video, and I noticed that I mentioned a few things which were part of today's lesson and all over the show, and I don't want anyone to get lost in terms of what we're trying to say. So, um, in terms of the text, we are still explaining the part which is that you make up the prayer, okay? The one who loses, what is the text? Read the text. Read out to me. Yeah, read it, read it. No, no, the part about uh, making up the prayer if you are unconscious. Uh, it has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness. It has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep, from sleep fainting, fainting, intoxication, intoxication or likewise, etc. And the point, and the very important point that we made last week, and it cannot be made enough in all of fiqh, is that whenever you see a phrase or an understanding, okay, just like this man who just came and irritated me and immensely, he said that, oh, what are you trying to teach these people about what's happening here? I said, what I'm trying to teach them is that you sit down this lesson and you study it instead of reading it off a board. Uh, people, they try, they, they, he goes, give me the summary. I've got the summaries that you sit down and you study it like everyone else has been for five weeks on the same page instead of reading the bloody line. And people like this irritate me, especially the older generation who think this religion comes like that. That's why they're all ignorant, but ignorant. Yeah? Anyway, so it's very, very important that when we come across any statement made by a scholar, that you understand it in the terms of the scholar or his aqidah or his, um, uh, his madhab or his uh, uh, dialect or his whatever. A statement, these are very big rules that are being mentioned now. All of fiqh, in fact, all of deen is based upon the intention of the one who speaks. Yep. This is something which is applied in law, in civil law, in, in, in sharia law, in any kind of legal system actually. It's down to intention, okay? not down to what people understand. Obviously, unless there's someone who is playing with the, the law and you know, just trying to kind of hide behind intention. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shantiti gave an example of this. He said that if a man says to a woman that she's divorced, but he was using it in a very eloquent kind of Arabic fashion of trying to say that he was she was divorced from her senses, for example. You know, that's the kind of, you know, people might speak in that way. And it's very clear to him in his mind that that's exactly what he said and that's exactly what the girl understood as well, his wife. Then the divorce has not actually occurred even though it's obligated upon the judge to go by what is externally obvious, okay? We're going to come to that as well in a, in, in, you know, a few lines as well. But um, it's really important to understand that there are different levels of responsibility. A person cannot be, uh, 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 when it comes to ruling, when it comes to ruling, you have to go by the external. When it comes to studying, you have to make the effort to understand what the actual intention is. When it comes to the actor themselves, who has done the act, it doesn't matter 
what the ruling uh, is given against you. It doesn't matter whether the one who's studying misunderstands you. As long as you understood what you mean, then you'll be, you'll be safe. So for example, if a judge said you are divorced and you can't be together, but you carried on living together, you would not be sinful in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You'd have a legal case on, the ha- on your hand, of course, but that's something else. So what I said last week is that when it comes to intoxication, uh, when it comes to unconsciousness, okay, according to the Hanbalis, they make a very important, um, how can I say, a, a decision amongst themselves. And they basically decide that every loss of wakeness or consciousness, whatever phrase you want to use, is the same when it happens, whether you faint, whether you are in a coma, whether you are sleeping, whatever. Because for them, once you're out, you're out. And as we said, that's why they have budged, budged it all together. However, the correct position is that that's not the case. That there is a difference between someone who goes to sleep and someone who loses consciousness. The simple difference being that when you go to sleep, you can wake that person up. And when the person becomes comatose, loses consciousness for some other reason, then you cannot wake them up. They need to be either by themselves, naturally be, you know, come round. Or you need to use something crazy like, you know, force and smelling salts and... Or you need to re-administer, um, you know, whatever it is when you give after and when you give after an anesthetic, and so on. So that's fundamentally the difference. And so uh, uh, it's it, it, I obviously when I translate, I'm translating the humbly text. It's in the explanation that we explain the realities. So what you're reading on boards and in books, whatever, is the actual classical fiqh text as written by the humbly scholars. And we will not yani, betray that. I'll tell you something else, actually, which is interesting. In the last hundred years, what you might call, uh, and probably the last 30 of them more specifically, when it comes to the revival kind of movements, uh, the, the, the sahwa, as we call it, the Islamic revivalism over the last 20, 30 years, which is probably linked to a more political one. Probably the Iranian revolutions also got a, a role to play. The Saudi kingdom getting stronger and stronger, etc., etc., what you often found, especially with the increasing Saudiization, uh, if you like, of the da'wah, which has had many positive uh, uh, consequences, but also some negative ones as well. One of the negative ones is that due to a lack of, uh, Allah knows best uh, how to describe it, but I'm happy to describe it as maybe an inferiority complex or maybe uh, feeling insecure, they did not feel super confident to be able to leave texts alone as they should be problematic texts, for example, or problematic interpretations. And so sometimes you'll find them falling into the error of actually changing uh, the explanation of certain things or or removing certain explanatory uh, remarks or maybe even worse, editing actual original texts themselves. Like uh, uh, the easiest and the weakest example to give, it's a weak one, it's not a very good one, but the weakest example to give is like the Muhsin Khan Quran, English translation, the noble Quran. What you have here is such a sense of paranoia that you cannot read one sentence of the Quran except that you have a hundred words in brackets. Yes? Brackets, 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 brackets. They're not confident enough to let you, the reader, read it and understand it in its correct way. And that's a fear which is founded. It's a fear which is founded, especially if there are many people of deviancy around that are teaching wrong understandings. Translations are very, very poor. And there are people with agendas, political aqidah agendas. For example, if you were to read a translation written by the Qadianis, you will see the difference. And you will see 
if you were to read a Shia version of the Quran and you didn't know, you would come across statements and you because you're not very, you know, you're not you're not using the Quran regularly, then you make some mistakes and start to believe things, etc. So the, the, the fear is a founded one, but then it starts to get to a level of paranoia which is too much. And then you, you see you see them trying to, you know, every single statement needs a commentary, every single statement needs an explanation. So it's understandable, but it's unacceptable to actually edit the text. So that's something which we are, uh, we, which you should be aware of. It's a methodology. I don't want to say it is without foundation. I just gave you the justification why. But I don't like it. I'm not a fan of it. And the true student of knowledge and a true scholarly approach should never be afraid of anything. And actually, if you have this approach in your, in your deen, then I think it's a life-changing approach as well, meaning that it changes your, your approach to other matters uh, that you come across, not just in religious texts, but political matters as well, PR matters as well, social interactions as well. For example, if you pursue this approach in life, then you're not going to be the kind of person who's going to just for the sake of PR or the news you know, broadcast change your opinion on certain things. You're going to stick to it straight and you're going to defend it. So a person says, do you believe in jihad? And you're sitting there saying, well, jihad means this, that, blah, 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 blah. Then you know what? You keep playing that line for so long, you're going you're gonna to get caught out. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna find you're going to have to start to make kind of a but, yeah, but this. Whereas if you come straight, I'm just giving the example. Or if you come straight out and said, of course we believe in jihad. Don't you believe in, in military yani warfare? Do you not belong to democracy that has to have a defense system? Do you not believe in the concept of, of war? And you know, and just be straight out and stick to your stick to your positions without having to try and you know flap around and so on and so forth, and not try to edit the narrative. Not try not to edit the narrative. Be confident about where you are, and if the person doesn't understand, that's their problem. I'm very very comfortable with my understanding. Now, one of the things that happens when you start to play around too much editing is that you lose your stability. When you don't have solid foundations and you start to you know, write everything off, then you start to lose your deen. Then you have nothing left. I have seen this in my own personal capacity for the last 15, 20 years. And this is my personal advice to everyone. Do not yani, water down your religion or try to edit it too much. Just like you don't edit texts, whatever. We're not, never ashamed of anything. If we have a problem with that one of our scholars makes, put hands up and say it's a problem. If he made, someone makes a mistake which is dangerous or something which is politically you know incorrect we say he made he made a mistake if someone says that you know you've got an issue I'll say I've got an issue someone says that the reasons for terrorism what are they okay like in the discussions that we're having now then you say yeah there is a there's definitely a religious problem as well it's no point going on about our foreign policy and blah 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 everyone knows all that okay and if they don't then we can say it and we've said it so many times and every time we open our mouth you know, we're getting done for it anyway you're not you're not condemning it for the real reasons you're always putting a button you're always whatever so sometimes you need to change your approach and sometimes say right you know what let's actually go back and realize what's the actual truth of the matter well, the truth of the matter is that we have cycles out there who very very much use quran and sunnah to establish a, a state of mind and then they use political events to be able to justify what they need to go to do further. But in, in essence, in essence, it is a religious perversion. It is a religious deviation. Okay, in essence, in principle. So what I'm saying is that if a person has this very straightforward, honest, academic approach to everything, then they will, I, I, I put to you that you will find that this principle will serve you well in your life, 
in your day-to-day -day dealings with people and you won't end up confused and having to you know keep messing about so I know that you might think that was a bit of a stretch or a tangent, but it's very relevant to, for example, how I would translate this humbly text. I'm, I'm translating it, I'm thinking to myself, this is, well, number one, not even my position, but so what if it's not my position? I'll explain my position in the commentary. Let's translate it exactly how they want it to be translated. There's also a possibility that, you know, like certain phrases themselves, they have some political agenda. Hey, you know what, let's translate it like they want and we explain it. So that's really important for you to be academically honest at all times when it comes to dealing with anything in life, not just religion. So here, we've translated it as the humblies have wanted us to, i.e. that a person loses their consciousness and for them it's all the same. However, we learned last week or we started last week that actually we're only happy with the sleep concept to be specific to sleep. Sleep is a temporary state, a very light state of loss of consciousness and it's something where you still have some ability to sense and it is for that reason, that ability to sense that you still are considered mukallaf, someone who is taklif, someone who is legally responsible. That's why you have to make the prayer up as soon as you wake up. Likewise, if a person is not like that, then that's what we're going to look at now. So, oh, sorry, then, and then we covered that last week as well. We said ikhma is when you enter into a comatose state, yes? Or uh, a, a stupor of some kind of uh, nature. A stupor where basically one is unable to sense, one is unable to be woken up. Um, and the things that I wanted to uh, mention just in, in finishing about this is the issue of the prayer. Did we mention that? If you miss a prayer, if you are comatose? We said the trust position was if you fainted, then you, you, you don't make up miss prayer. You said the Hanafi position was like five or six. Good. That's what we finished on. So exactly. Imam Abu Hanifa alayhi rahmatullah, he said, If it is five prayers or less, then those prayers are made up. So for example, if a person was to faint in the morning at Fajr time and then come round at Isha time, okay, suddenly he just kind of, you know, wakes up, but he's not been asleep, he's unconscious, okay? He's fainted, whatever, medically. So... When he wakes up, according to Abu Hanifa, he will have to make up the prayers. And according to uh, Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani, his closest student and companion, he said that no, it's six prayers. So actually, you know, he uh, I'm making a bit more. And I told you that the reasoning for that last week, I said that the reasoning for them is that they kind of plucked this number out of the air, really. They said that, well, you know what? If I was to miss some prayers, what would I consider to be a small amount? It's a, like a subjective statement. What would I consider to be easy? So they said, well, five or six. And that's where the two positions come from. And I told you what Sheikh Uthameen said yesterday. He goes, Sheikh Uthameen says, the problem I find with this position is that when a person says five or six, then what's wrong with seven? And what's wrong with eight? Because once you said five or six, is easy to make up. Well, then so is seven and eight. So, uh, so uh, Sheikh Uthameen himself, he goes the other opposite end. And he says that no uh, prayer, prayer is, um, there are no prayers to be made up. If you were to be unconscious for, for two prayer times or for 200 prayer times, all of the prayers are taken off you. All the prayers are taken off you. Why is this difference of opinion there? Because the scholars did not understand, did not, could not agree on what do we, how do we treat this person who's lost consciousness? Do we treat, what are the, what are the two ways to treat this person? What are the two ways to treat this person? Insane, Insane excellent, or? 
Sleep. Very good. Well done. Okay? We're either going to treat him as a sleeping person or we're going to treat them as an insane person. And this is exactly the discussion that the fuqaha had. So they said, are we going to make qiyas, analogy, and then rule upon him as if he was insane or as if he is sleeping? So let's first look at sleeping. If you rule upon him if he is sleeping, then that means what? That means what? He has to make up the prayers when he comes around. That's the legal consequence. But when he comes round, even after 10 years, he has to make up all the prayers. Okay? Whereas if we rule on him as if he is majnoon, someone who is insane, okay, clinically insane, then the consequence is, is that whenever he wakes up, whether he misses prayer 1, 10, 1000, he doesn't make up the prayer. Why does the insane one not make up the prayer? We covered that two weeks ago, yes? And Nabi Sallallahu said that the pen has been lifted from three people. One of them is the one who is insane until he regains his sanity. So the insane one, why is it that the insane one does not pray? Because they are unable to understand. And if you, are, if you cannot understand, then you cannot form a intention. And no act of worship will ever be accepted without an intention. All actions are by intention, are but by intention. So until we uh, have got a person who is able to make that intention, no action can be taken, no, no action will be accepted from them. And so therefore, they do not have to pray. So when we have this unconscious person, we're either going to decide it's like this, like that. Muhammad Muqtar Shantaiti, Hafidhullah, he himself said that there's a principle. When you have two positions, you've got to try and make one of them stronger. If you are unable to make one of them stronger, then the the, the, the maxim is that you go back to what is what he's closer to in principle. Okay? So, how is the unconscious one close to the sleeping one? Because um, uh, he's not insane. That's the, that, that's the actual answer. In that when he is asleep, <coughs> uh, he's not insane and when a person is unconscious then he's also in a deep sleep but he's not insane that's the closeness there how is he close to the insane one? he's not in control he's what? he's not in control yeah uh, not in control but the sleeping one's not also not in control something a bit more correct correct he doesn't have senses he cannot be woken up he cannot understand yeah, and he, like, the, like the insane one, he cannot uh, understand. Muhammad al-Shaqidi said, when you have these two uh, against each other, you've got to choose one which is closer in principle. For him, he chooses sleep. He said that whatever happens, sleep is going to be the one which is closer. That is why, according to Sheikh Muhammad, it's a person who is in a comatose state, has to make up all of the prayers that they miss, whatever. If they faint and they miss one prayer, ten or a thousand... All of the prayers have to be made up. And that is the position of Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shanqiti. Okay? Um, and what, what, uh, one of the points I was going to add to this, Sheikh Uthameen, alayhi rahmatullah, what did he say? He said no. He said the prayer is not to be made up at all. He said that when a person cannot be, does not wake up by himself and will only... And, and will only wake up yani, you know, uh, due to unnatural kind of reasons, then he is to be considered like the, the insane one, and therefore he's not to be prayed, he, he doesn't pray at all. And 
Sheikh bin Baz, just to add this point, to add some completion to this, alayhi rahmatullah, the chief, the previous chief mufti of, of Saudi, is a good scholar, mashallah. What did he say? He said that if a person is unconscious, unconscious for unconscious for less than three days, then he has to make up the prayer. And if it's for more than three days, then he doesn't have to make up the prayer. So if he's in a coma for five days, then that five days were like it didn't happen. The fasting and the prayer, it just didn't even apply to him. It didn't even apply. So imagine, imagine, according to Bin Baz, if we are on the first of Ramadan, okay, and he loses consciousness, okay, then on the sixth of Ramadan, on the sixth of Ramadan, he would carry on praying and carry on fasting and not have to make up a fast or a prayer. Do you understand? That's a serious point. No fasting makeup, no prayer makeup, because it's like it never happened. It wasn't obligatory upon him in the first place because he didn't have the ability to have the mind. Why did he say that? Two reasons. The first one is the, as I mentioned last week, the athar, the narration of Ammar bin Yasir, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and that's been narrated in uh, the Musannaf of uh, Abdul Razak. And you can find this at the bottom of page 16 in the text, okay, in the footnotes and by Ibn Abi Shaiba in the Book of Prayer. And what basically happened there is Yazid, the Mawla of Ammar, meaning the freed slave of Ammar, he said that Ammar ibn Yasir, the companion, وَالْعَصَر. he fainted, lost consciousness, and he was gone for Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, and Isha. And so at midnight he came round again, and he prayed Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, and Isha. Okay? So he missed four prayers and he made them all up. Okay, Shafi'i said that this narration is weak. The majority of the scholars consider this narration to be weak. Okay, however, it's a weak narration from a companion. We have another authentic narration which has been narrated now again. This is at the bottom of page 17 in the Sharh. This is narrated by Mamalik in the Muatta uh, in the book of the Prayer Times, and it is on the authority of Abdullah ibn Umar that Nafi' his free slave his freed slave so you can see that these are the people who are very close to them said that Ibn Umar fainted for three days and three nights and he did not make up a single prayer three days and three nights and he did not make up a single prayer and the chain of this narration is super authentic because it comes straight from Nafi' to who? Imam Malik himself okay so he him, took it from Nafir himself and it's, it's a lovely chain. So that's why Ibn Baz, he put this kind of idea that if it's less than three days, you make it up, uh, even though that narration is weak, and more than three days, you don't make it up, and even though that narration is authentic. And Uthameen said, it doesn't matter what. So I've given you three positions, haven't I? Yes? I said that Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shanqiti said, and a number of the scholars said, that you will have to make up these prayers regardless. All of them. You got Uthameen said you never make it up. And then you got Ibn Baz that gave three days. <laughs> the class position here, okay, is difficult to yani, explain in that the evidence seems to suggest that Sheikh Uthameen's position is correct. However, prudence and taking a safety, uh, a safety approach would suggest that Sheikh Ibn Baz's fatwa is a sensible one. It has a little bit of the Hanafi school in there. As, uh, as well in that there's an understanding that there is a certain number of prayers that are made up and it has a kind of a safety valve 
so that yani, you don't reject the principle in a totality. So as the class position, we take the fatwa of Sheikh bin Baz. That's what I take personally, and that's what I teach in Kitab al-Salah. And this is referring to, as I said, a person who is, uh, 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 fa- has fainted. Okay, fainted by themselves. We're talking someone knocked out. We're going to come to a few other uh, 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 variations in a minute. <laughs> Is there anything uh, on that one? Okay. Yes. Sorry, last week, did you say, maybe I misunderstood, you said that the fainted person, the class position was that the isn't made up. Correct. Uh, uh, what I meant to say is that this is Sheikh Uthameen's position. Okay. This is Sheikh Uthameen's position. But I think, personally, I think that as a class position, we should take the position of his colleague, Sheikh Bin Baz, which is slightly more nuanced. Slightly more nuanced. I mean, they're pretty much the same. They're basically saying that a person who faints, well, it's, they're not the same really, but Bin Baz is basically saying a person faints normal fainting, they're going to end up making a prayer. But if it turned into a serious kind of coma over, the, over three days, then he's not going to end up making the prayer. Okay? I'll tell you something else which Sheikh Uthameen mentioned, which I did like. Okay? I did like. And that's why I'm not going to force this class position on you and say this is definitely a strong class position. Okay? Um, uh, of, of Ibn Baz I still want to give some respect to Uthameen one point he made is very good he said that it's unlikely that it is correct to make the qiyas of losing consciousness, fainting with sleep because sleep is mu'tad and kathir, happens every single day all the time whereas the nature of fainting is rare once in a lifetime kind of reality <laughs> or coma is rare once in a lifetime kind of you know and the majority of people won't ha- it won't happen to and so therefore when it comes to making an analogy we should also try to make an analogy between what's realistically going to happen as well and i like that statement it's a good statement he said that and so therefore it's correct to say that fainting is an extreme exceptional reality and therefore we will have an extreme exceptional ruling for it that the prayer doesn't need to be made up. And I like that fiqh. It, it, yani, it fits with the system of the sharia. That's, what, that's my point. Yeah? Okay, yeah. Sheikh bin Baz's opinion was based on this narration. Of Abdullah ibn Umar. So he woke up after three days. Cor- uh, correct. Three days and three nights. What if he woke up after two days? Then, we, we no, obviously, you know, then we'd have to, you know... So we're basing this class position because he happened to wake up after three days. Yes, athar. And that's why I said to you last week as well that the evidence in, the evidences in this are not strong. Abu Hanifa goes on Aqal, five, six, seven, you know, will easily be refuted. Ishaqim Baz goes on the an Athar, can be easily refuted. You could say that he did it out of recommendation, not out of obligation. You could say that a narration is weak of, of Amar. So it's not a clear position. That's why when you have unclarity or this kind of situation, you try to take almost a middle ground safe position as students, even though we understand the reality. Now, okay. uh, make up prayer, is it just a Right. So this is also a, a really important point. Uh, how do you make up the prayers? Okay, let's say you take the position of Sheikh Muhammad Muhtar Shankiti. How do you actually make up the prayers? He said, first of all, when it comes to making up the prayers, it's only the fard prayers, okay, and not the sunnah prayers. The sunnah prayers, there's an exception for when you make them up, and that's something which we're going to cover, you know, not, not now at all. But as far as you're concerned, okay, as far as the people on this planet at this moment in time are concerned, okay, with the quality of Islam that we do and have, 
then the obligatory prayers are the only prayers that are to be made up, not the sunnah. That's the first thing. The second thing which Sheikh Muhammad said is that you divide up the making up methodology into two depending upon how long you've been out for. So he said, if a person's been out for four, five days, three, four days, yani a small time, then it is permissible for the person to make up the prayers in one go. Like, you know, you wake up and da 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 da, -da knock it out. You know, between morning and afternoon, for example. But when it becomes a significant period of time, and of course the word significant has been left undefined, so it's a subjective phrase, but he said three, four months, three, four weeks, you know, like what you call like a long period of time, then the way you make them up is like the classical way of making them up, which is that you make it up at, the, uh, at each prayer time. Okay? So the fajr that you've missed, you pray before. Remember, when you're making up a prayer, you always pray before the actual prayer that is on its time. So Fajr, you would um, pray your two sunnah, okay, your normal two sunnah Fajr. Then you would pray the two Fajr that you've missed, and then you would pray the two Fajr that you need to pray now. Al-Qadha qabla al-Mu'adha, yani the, the uh, owing before the actual one. And you would continue that for four months, three weeks, whatever it is, until it's done. If you say to me, what's the evidence? There is no evidence, okay? But I can certainly see the ugly evidence. The ugly evidence and why the scholars say this is because they're wary of a person not being in the prayer, you know, in, 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 in mind. If a person has so many to make up and he goes, I'm going to do a hundred today, I'm going to do a hundred tomorrow, it's just going to become a mechanical kind of race, isn't it? Yeah? It's just going to be just, you know, 20 rakat at the local kind of thing. Just get it done, Yanni, yeah? Up, down, up, down, shake it all about, yeah? So it's not going to be a real proper salah. Um, that's their understanding, and Allah knows best, yeah? Um, you come on to the insane, your question about the insane. Yes, you we're going to talk about that, yes. What about, uh, <coughs> sorry, about uh, Makhrib? About what, sorry? Makhrib. Are you going to pray, are you going to pray before? No, no, this is in the time, of course. So, uh, Maghrib would happen, and then you'd pray before Maghrib, uh, the, the Maghrib prayer. But you wouldn't pray yeah. <laughs> before it became Maghrib. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, so the next one then is Al Sukrin. So, um, intoxication. Sukr, okay. Uh, muskir is an intoxicant. Sukr or Sukran means that one is intoxicated, one is drunk, effectively. So, um, there are obviously some scenarios here because there are you can be sinful and drunk and you can be not sinful and drunk. So the the not sinful the, the sinful is obvious. You decide to take you know drink alcohol. You decide to uh, take drugs. You decide to smoke weed. You decide to take heroin. Whatever. All of these are completely haram. And if you do it, okay, knowingly, intentionally, then you have not only sinned, and it's a significant sin. That needs kafara and need expiation and so on and so forth. But you are also sinning because you cannot pray. And why can you not pray? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nisa, Ya amanu, la salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taqulun. Oh, you who believe, uh, don't come close to the prayer whilst you are intoxicated until you know that which you say. Until you know that which you say. That's Surah An-Nisa, verse 43. Verse 43. And this, of course, is the very famous verse which came as part of the prohibition of alcohol. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited the companions, okay, from coming and praying whilst they were drinking. And this verse, in principle, was actually 
a verse that kind of kind of allowed the drinking to occur outside of the prayer time in the gradual prohibition okay during the gradual prohibition so this was basically making it clear there's some weak narrations there are some weak narrations which i explain in in fiqh salah the class itself because that's more of a you know a more whole, more holistic class but i mean i'll mention it now here as well that um there are some weak athar that one of the companions he was uh drinking and he was drunk and uh, he became intoxicated i mean and he was reciting qul ya ayyul kafirun he said qul ya ayyuhal kafirun a'budu ma ta'budun wa antum a'buduna ma a'bud oh say to the old disbelievers i worship that which you worship and you worship what i worship which is yani completely <laughs> kufr and everything so he was making kufr he was getting it wrong he was saying that he's kafir he was saying that the kafirs are muslims he, he was all over the show and so they said that basically uh, it was after that that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this ayah but that narration is not very strong not very strong however it doesn't matter the main thing is is that this ayah makes it clear that one cannot pray whilst intoxicated because they don't know what they're saying they don't know what they're doing and you have to obviously as we said have to have intention for a prayer qast a clear yani intention decision awareness understanding and it has to have an impact and you can't do that if you don't know what you're doing or saying so to step back then as i said you can be drunk or intoxicated in two ways you are either intentionally doing it and then you're in big trouble because you got double sin because you will force to be you will forcefully miss the prayer because you can't pray okay it's not like you're locked up you could pray but it's not going to be accepted and you'd have to pray again when you are you know when you are uh, sober okay and you did uh, something which is haram major sin the other alternative is that you are not sinful because you drank water and it was vodka for example okay might happen okay i don't know enough for long yeah <laughs> once off yani okay um so you know you you misunderstood you i don't know you someone told you hey check this out and you took a whatever i don't know but uh, so you did it by accident uh, and some scholars said if you're forced to but that's a very difficult discussion which is not for now because ikrah coercion is a very sensitive uh, subject in fiqh can legal rules be changed because of coercion um if you are forced to for example smoke uh, weed or cocaine or something um is it permissible then for you not to pray as a massive discussion i mean is an aqidah discussion before we get to the fiqh so we're not going to get involved in that sub- subsection but let's just deal with the the sin point of view that person would not be sinning for the 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 um uh the act of taking the intoxicant okay wa in kana ghayr athim bi sukrihi kama law sharaba sharaban jahilan annahu muskir fa innahu yaqdi aydan li'anna hadha hasil bi ikhtiyarihi lakin la ithma alayhi li'annahu jahilun bi kawnihi muskira so this person has to make up the prayer even though it didn't happen by his choice but he's still drunk so he has to make up that prayer and the na- the nature of this prayer when he does it is that it it will be if it's still in the prayer time so let's say he was drunk in the morning still drunk at the beginning of dhuhr not in a fit state to pray he's got 3 hours for dhuhr when there's a 15 minutes left he's now back to his senses he you know he has a you know cold shower whatever he's fully back in the game he prays and he made it in time then the prayer was ada meaning it was fulfilled in its proper time if for example he was so drunk that he reached over until uh, asr then and he came around in asr and that then he would pray it dhuhr first 
and that would be called qada. That would be called qada because as we defined last week, qada is every prayer which is prayed in the next time, after the end of the current time. Okay? وَلِهَذَا كَانَ عِمَتَ الْعَرْبَعَ مُتَّفِقِينَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ مَنْ زَالَ أَقْلُهُ بِسُكْرٍ فَإِنَّهُ يَقْضِي And I want to conclude this point that um, the four imams have a consensus on the point that whoever is intoxicated, they must make up the prayer. Meaning that even if they were to pray then, it would not be accepted and that they would uh, wait or delay or whatever until they come round and they have to make up the prayer. Is that clear? Okay. So the real discussion that we need to try and cover is or something similar. Okay. So by similar, now the next section, we're talking about drugs really. Okay. We're talking about medication. We're talking about the really difficult kind of situation. So, so far we said sleep. That's clear. Then we said someone fainting. That's clear. Then we said someone who becomes drunk out of his own choice. That's clear. But what happens when something else hap- uh, something else is chosen? So for example, and let's have a discussion to try and define this because this really is a discussion point and even the scholars are not very clear, not clear, not very happy with respect to where they are on this. But um, you can either, let's say you're in a road traffic accident and you lose consciousness, okay? Then um, that is a type of ighma, okay? It's a type of ighma. But let's play on that. You're brought into emergency and you come around. Okay? So if you come around and... Um, but they need to open up and they need to make life-saving saving surgery and they put you out before asking you. Okay? So that's a category. Them making you comatose or whatever the phrase is um, because they need to. And then there is another scenario where they might say to you, for example, you could take GA if you wish, a general anesthetic, or you can, you know, we can do it under a local anesthetic. It's up to you. And so in that second scenario, you choose to go under. You know, you choose to enter into the comatose state. Um, What other scenarios could there be? What other scenarios could there be? Someone uh, can't get to sleep normally, insomnia. Right. And uh, they start taking medication to go to sleep. Right. And that knocks them out. Very good. That's a very good one. So, person can't get sleep, they go into sleeping tablets, misread the whole thing, don't understand what's going on, and the thing knocks them out for the whole day. Yeah, so night and day, they're gone. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. Any, anything else? That can be added. Another side effect of medication or interaction that you weren't aware of. Side effect of something, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. What about routine uh, um, operations? What about, and this is what I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks actually, okay? A person who is looking for a cosmetic operation, a cosmetic operation which is not obligatory, not life threatening, nothing of any sort. However, taking it will definitely require a GA or maybe, you know, for a significant period of time, okay? Cosmetic surgery is a, is, is a, a very uh, interesting area of fiqh, by the way, because cosmetic surgery in principle is not permissible because it comes under the changing of the khalq Allah, the changing of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited, and shaitan said that he would force the, the mankind to do. 
and that I will make them do this and I'll make them do that. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited that. However, the correct position on cosmetic surgery is that anything which is needed to bring person up to parity is permissible. And parity is not choosing, you know, you know, the best looking guy on the planet as parity, because everyone then would need surgery, okay? But we're talking about yeah, any parity being you in a normative way. So for example, you have a deformity of some sort, okay? And or you have like a birthmark which is huge, or you have I don't know, you have a you have like I don't know, an extra nostril or something. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But yeah, whatever. But the point is it's not normal and it can be fixed and it needs a GA. So that's something which is happening under your but you know, you don't need to do that, do you, really? It's just you living with your extra nostril, I guess. Yeah? Or your deformity and so on and so forth. So you really don't need to. Uh, it's not obligatory. Yeah? So um, that's another area. Anyway, Sheikh Uthameen, he makes it into a very simple situation then, for him. Then you have surgery that's neither life threatening or cosmetic. So let's have an example. Uh, back surgery. So a person needs back surgery. No, back surgery is a bad example because we would easily justify that as an obligatory, obligatory surgery. So maybe think of a different one. The reason back surgery is not a good example is because the back is so key to many acts of worship. It getting done will increase the quality of the worship, so we'd make it obligatory. Try and find a more minor surgery, physical minor surgery that really doesn't need to be done and uh, like an arthritic one for example a sinus operation good which is livable with livable. Yep. yep but obviously quality of life is improved if you take it very good so according to Sheikh Uthameen and the Hanbali school he agrees with the Hanbali school here okay actually he agrees with the text as it is which is that a person has to make up these prayers has to make up the prayers for every single second that he is out via this form of uh, 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 thinking, uh, this, uh, in, this uh, loss of consciousness. And I'll read to you exactly what he says. He says, so this is an area of difference of opinion. And if you go back to Mughni, there's a big discussion there. He goes, and so from Minahnil Ilman Qal, so there are some from the people of knowledge who said that if the person's mind is lost, uh, you know, loses consciousness, with something which is permissible, then there is no making up for him. So if a person loses their mind, I keep saying loses their mind, because I'm not translating literally. If a person loses consciousness, okay, with something which is permissible, like, you know, like a GA, like a whatever, general anesthetic or some sort, then he does not need to make up the prayer because they are, they have a legal excuse. However, what is stronger, according to my opinion, Sheikh Uthameen says, is that if he loses consciousness with his choice, then he must make up the prayer. But if he loses consciousness without his choice, then he doesn't need to make up the prayer. That is his position. Okay? And, Sheikh, yes? Correct, but that would be in the, that's the grey area which we're going to try and discuss now. Yeah, that's the grey area. So, 
if you look at Sheikh Taymiyyah's position, it's a quite a straightforward one, right? He's basically saying that if you are, you're in a car accident and they put you under because they need to do life-saving, uh, you know, whatever, and you're out for ages, you're not going to make anything up. You weren't aware. You weren't part of the decision process. They made the decision for you, blah, blah, blah. When you come round, end the story. No making up of the prayers. Easy. However, he's saying that any of the other operations that we're talking about, all of the rest, because you choose it, okay, then you have to make up the prayers as well. Now, I'll tell you what I find interesting in this position. I have to sympathize with this on a personal level. And the reason for that is because it goes back to another discussion, which um, we, we, did, we did last breath here. We did, isn't it? Yeah. So I taught the last breath here with the fiqh of death, uh, al-Maghrib uh, uh, double weekend class. And anyone who studied that, you will remember that I, uh, we, we discussed to understand some of the detailed, difficult issues of the fiqh of death, such as the, t- the turning off of life support, okay? Um, when you're turning off life support, um, there are a number of fiqhi matters that need to be considered. One of them, or, or the key one, I should say, at the, at the heart of the issue, is whether medical treatment is obligatory or not. And once you answer this question, which is a very difficult question, Okay, and the scholars differed over it. Okay, once you answer this question, you have a clear line of sight then to come to an answer on whether life support is important is needs to be you know kept on or not. And we're talking about life support with a person who we consider to be brain dead or clinically dead or virtually dead or whatever. That's of course the one we're talking about. We're not talking about life support for someone who's in generally good condition and probably going to come round. We just need to keep him on it for a couple of days. We're talking about someone who's pretty much gone by all consensus of all doctors. What do we decide? So in order to answer and give the fatwa to say, turn it off, no problem, you're not sinful, let the person go. And we give that fatwa a lot, by the way. Okay, A lot of people think the exact opposite, that we're going to keep holding on to them, keep holding on to them. Actually, what will, de- what will determine your fatwa is at principle whether you think medical treatment is obligatory or not. And if you don't, like I don't, then there are a number of consequential rulings that happen as a result of it. So if you do not consider medical treatment to be an obligation, then even life support is just something which is not obligatory. Okay? And anyway, that's a huge discussion. I don't want to get into that, obviously, but I'm making the point here that if you were to follow that position, then you understand where Sheikh Uthameen is coming from, who interestingly, by the way, does consider it obligatory, by the way, medical treatment. However, he, here, he's going against this principle because if you were to consider medical treatment obligatory... I'm just I'm not I'm not criticizing Sheikh Uthameen, but I'm just making an argument. If you were to consider medical treatment obligatory, you should then continue all that all the way through and then say that therefore a uh, an operation which has a benefit a perceived benefit should also be obligatory and anything which is obligatory then it should not be considered as something as part of your choice. However, if you were like me and said that medical treatment is not obligatory, and then therefore, you choose therefore to have an operation, then really you're making the choice yourself for your own quality of life, and you're asking for the trouble in, your, in the first place, and you're going, knocking yourself out basically, you know, because of your choice. Therefore, you know what, make up the prayer. So, uh, yeah. Yes. You said that is obligatory. You see, that's why I said I don't want to open it up too much, because... Even when we talk about the issue of whether medical treatment is obligatory or not, okay, um, there are so many caveats in trying to come to the conclusion of 
what is and what isn't. For example, Ibn Taymiyyah, when he discussed this, he mentioned so many things. He said that, is the treatment something which will impact upon the person's worship? So for example, if he refuses to take it, he can't worship Allah correctly. Because you could abuse this completely. Do you understand? There could be, yani, you need to pray. And he goes, oh, forget it, I'm going to take an operation. I'll just lie down in bed and not pray, kind of thing. So we'll say, no, no, you have to pray. Uh, you know what I mean? So there has to be things there. There are lots of caveats. So let's not open that, that, that door. Let me tell you what Ibn Baz said in a fatwa. Sheikh Ibn Baz gave a fatwa. And as I said, this is all very khilafi issues. This is up in the air. It's going to be down to what, what opinion we take because the evidences are not in abundance. So it's down to ijtihad, personal uh, decision. Sheikh Ibn Baz said that if a person is given an anesthetic and he is out for more than three days... So if person is given an anesthetic and he is unconscious for greater than three days, then there is no making up of the prayer based upon the analogy of the insane one. Okay? The insane one. However, if it is less than three days, then yes, based upon the sleeping one. Okay? If the anesthetic is less than three days then it is based upon the sleeping one again Ibn Baz has taken a middle position Ibn Baz has taken a middle position he's applying that regardless of whether you chose the anesthesia or not he is he's taken that middle position does that make sense yeah okay so you might say, what's the class position? I think the class position is Sheikh Uthameen's position. That's the one which I find safer here. Okay, even though personally, you know, whatever it is. But if a person chooses, chooses to take an operation and become unconscious as a result, it is the safer position to make up those prayers. Okay? However, if someone took Ibn Baz's position and said, well, you know what? I had a car crash. And they put me into a, an induced coma. And that induced... You know, induced comas, do they, are, they, are they generally lesser in length? They are, right? Because you, you wouldn't want a person to be comatose for that long, right? Huh? Schumacher was... Was he induced? Because if you've got swelling on the brain, then they'll induce a coma. Yes. Because, because of... To reduce the swelling. And Can be long term. Schumacher is a good example yes it is a good example well done yeah induced for a long time he was I mean ultimately Ibn Baz's position is like again a midway one which I want to state for that exact reason so that you know that that yeah, an laxity is there he's saying that regardless of whether you choose to or not choose to if it's gone for a long time then whatever the only difference with Schumacher sorry Schumacher that's not a good example sorry um, so it's a good example, but it's not the same here. Schumacher was never conscious to make that decision to go into unconscious. He didn't, he didn't regain. He didn't regain any form of decision based. Different levels of consciousness. But what I mean, not conscious. I mean that he never chose. It was done for him. Yeah, his medical team made that decision for him. And if the and as we said before, if the medical team make a decision for you without you having the chance or the right to disagree then you don't need to make up the prayer anyway okay you do not need to make up the prayer anyway that's what Sheikh Uthameen is saying Ibn Baz will say that as well etc etc I know there's a lot of statements flying around but I hope you understood everything in, in summary Sheikh Uthameen is saying that you do not make up the prayer if it didn't happen according to your consent 
If you chose to go out, then you have to make up all the prayers, every single one of them, however long you go out for. Ibn Baz is saying that that's only the case if it's for less than three days. But if you are out for more than three days, you don't need to make up the prayer, just like we, just like we said for the intoxicated one, just like we said for the fainted uh, chap, and so on, and so forth. Yeah? Yes? What happens when a person has, say, a urinary problem, yeah. can't keep up his rhythm, and yet he's missed, keeps on missing Yeah, so we can do Yeah, the, 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 one, the, the one who has urinary incontinence and so on and so forth, they, they pray. They pray in their state. They pray in that state. Correct. They pray in that state. What did we say? We said that a person makes wudu and he does not need to, this is my position, that a person makes wudu and he does not and makes istinja and then after that he does not need to make wudu or istinja again until he breaks wudu himself. So for example, he goes uh, to sleep or he does something else. But the year in which continues, this is not breaking his prayer anymore because it is a... Even, even if it spoils his garments. Correct. Correct. Even if it impurifies the garments until he himself does something else to break the wudu, then he needs to make wudu again. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, um, if someone does a extremely dangerous sport or activity, uh, you know where I'm going, yeah? Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, that's the problem, you see? That's, it, it, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. That's why... Okay, uh, um, yeah. Abdul Basit basically said, if a person basically himself by his own mazah, yeah, let me give it. Let me give you the the, the proper version. Yeah, his own mazah chooses to do bungee jumps and mountain biking and scuba diving and whatever. Yeah, and then as a result of that, falls into a situation, which is which not, would not have happened if he had been normal, sane human. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and then as a result, he has to have an operation and he's unconscious and then he has to whatever, uh, uh, you know, what do you do? Now, here, you have to have a brave scholar who's going to say, no, he doesn't need to make his prayers up. You know what I'm saying? Because just emotionally, uh, I mean emotionally because I'm not saying from an evidence point of view, emotionally, you know, the guy's having a laugh, isn't he really, if he's not going to make up his prayers, Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and it's a difficult one, right? Because if you say to him, no, you don't need to pray as well, he's like, khalas, I'm back onto the beast again. I'm out onto the old slopes again. Well, like, you know, the, as I said, the last couple of weeks I've been thinking of various, um, various different kind of like permutations of this. I mean, you could always, as I said, always take the safest, you, you, you know, first of all, very clear. This is all in the area of ishtihad. We have very little, uh, you know, clear evidences to be able to determine. And it's impossible for anyone to say another, to another person, you're following the wrong position. Because everything is a legal fatwa in this field. There is no evidence from the sunnah. So every, every scholar's opinion is as good as the other scholar's opinion. So a person could turn around and say, you know what, any time that I go under for a medical operation of any sort that I was part of, and parcel of in any way, whether it was my choice to play the sport or whatever, then I'll make up those prayers. Person could take that. 
And we've, always, we've said many times before that in principle, a person should try to do aslam wal ahwat, the most safest and most encompassing of opinions. Yeah? Okay, let's move on quickly because we are losing time and I want to do finish this section today. Um, and it is not accepted. What does the text say? From the Kafir and Majnoon? And it is not considered valid from someone who is insane or non Muslim. And I think that's pretty clear, okay? The one who's insane, it can't be accepted from him, a prayer, because he can't think and he can't make an intention and every act must go by intention. As for the kafir, the one who is non-Muslim, okay? And, uh, you know, I want to make a point here because as you know, every time there is some kind of, you know, event, then all of Islam comes under the microscope, okay? And so the... all the normal kind of usual suspects are out and they're questioning every single aspect of our religion and the word kafir is up again now for the debate is the word kafir something which is acceptable or not is it derogatory or not let me make it clear okay that unfortunately the word shares a history with a derogatory uh, apartheid type kind of word which is seen as derogatory uh, in whatever like Afrikaans yeah Afrikaans okay but in Islam the word is a descriptive term, okay? The problem is, of course, is that because people allow themselves to be trapped into this paradigm of us and them and whatever, whatnot, then people start to become defensive and try to kind of get rid of the word from the vocabulary. But the word غير muslimin is not something which is used by uh, the Qur'an, غير muslimin, And uh, there are other phrases and stuff, of course, but uh, not غير muslimin, And that's something which we kind of generally say, non-Muslims, right? غير muslimin. So there's nothing wrong with saying that. That's fine. But don't feel, don't, you know, the problem is when you keep using a phrase like that, that you start to then feel embarrassed about the word kafir. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that word without any embarrassment whatsoever. Okay? Day and night. And that will remain the case all the way until the end. And uh, if people have got a problem with that, then we need to educate them. You need to, obviously there's some PR issues there, there's some whatever issues there, but the word kafir does not mean a derogatory term in of itself. And when we explain to a non-Muslim that this is a descriptive term, I can either call you a non-Muslim, I can call you a kafir, but I know that's not going to go down well, okay? But I'm just saying, that's the way that it works, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. People don't like to be described in the negative. Yeah. Like you're, not, you're, you know, you're a non-Christian. Yes, any non is seen. That's also a good point. That's also a good point. I think it does... I mean, it's, it's, it's up for discussion. But anyway, the word kafir is, is that. And uh, of course, kufr is a man. It's a barrier to the acceptance of deeds. Okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Surah At-Tawbah, وَمَا مَنَعَهُمْ أَن تُقْبَلَ مِنْهُمْ نَفَقَاتُهُمْ إِلَّا أَنَّهُمْ كَفِرُوا بِاللَّهِ وَبِرَسُولِهِ Surah At-Tawbah, which is Surah number 9, verse 54. And what was it that, what was it that blocked their charity being accepted, except that they disbelieved in Allah and His Messenger. What was it that blocked their nafaqat, all of their spending, all of their good actions, their sadaqah, what was it that blocked that, that being accepted by Allah, except that they disbelieved in Allah and His Messenger? And this is something which is well known. When Mu'adh was sent to Yemen, the Prophet ﷺ said, call them first to Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And if they respond to you positively, if they accept that, then tell them that Allah has obligated upon them five prayers in the day and night and so on. So if they don't accept that, then there's no point getting on to the whole prayer thing because Iman is a condition. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also in Surah Al-Furqan, verse 23, he also said that we shall turn their deeds that they have done and scatter them like haba'an manthura, like we will scatter them like dust. Talking them, I'm talking about the, the non-Muslims because their actions, their actions and their deeds will not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It will be scattered like dust because of their kufr. There's a hadith as well, of course, and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the actions of the non-Muslims, the hasanat of the non-Muslims, that their ajr is given to them in the dunya. That their hasanat, that their ajr is given to them in the dunya. This hadith is not the most authentic, but yani. Um, so it is important to understand that in principle, the, uh, any prayer is not going to be accepted from a non-Muslim and, and that is a consensus point. That is a point of consensus. Okay, moving on then to the next part. So, yep. yep. so just to understand the word Majnoon here in yes. this context, yes. the key thing here, because obviously mental illness is a massive area, It is. the key thing is the ability to form an intent. Yes. Is that the only condition here? No, it is not the only condition. Let me read to you exactly what he said. What's your question? The question is that obviously when we say insane, majnoon, okay, the problem is is that there is a wide variety or spectrum of mental illnesses where a person is not in control of their sanity uh, depending on, on various levels. So what are the parameters? Who's in and who's out? Who's accepted and who's not? And that's a very important and very difficult question. So let me read to you exactly what he says. And as you know, he's not going to say much. He said, it is not valid that the prayer is not valid from the insane one because of the lack of a intention. Because he does not, he is not able to form an intention. And the one who is not able to form an intention, then he cannot have an action. Because of the Prophet ﷺ said that indeed all actions are but by intention. Similar to this are those who are in a state of delirium and those who are senile and unable to have la yani they are unable to I don't know what the word you want to translate it as intellectualize, think, rational or, 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 or rationalize. I think rationalize. So if we were to use the word rationalize. How much of the mental spectrum does that cover easily? Small amount, I'd say. So the question I was going to follow up say, supposing you have somebody who is not well, mentally ill, is able to form an intent. Let's suppose he's got schizophrenia or something like that. Yeah? He's hearing voices, yeah? So this man can't hold a conversation more than 10, 20 <coughs> seconds without being distracted. His memory's all over the place. His concentration's all over. So you know... He's not even going to be able to do, get to the end of the, the first rakah, never mind, the four rakahs, yeah? So even though he's presently all over the place, is he still obligated to pray? Everyone heard that question, right? Okay. Especially someone who's uh, suffering from some form of... And I, I want to put schizophrenia into a, into a position, into a, into a category, a new category, because the word majnoon is a noun, and that, that basically determines that it is time-independent. Meaning it is permanent status, okay? Permanent status. Yes. So, if a person is not all the time majnoon, he's in, out, in, out, okay? Then there's no doubt he's to be treated like a normal person. And they have to do all of the obligations. 
and whatever they're unable to do and unable to understand and unable to rationalize and unable to form an intention for during, before, after, then that's something which is forgiven. And that's very important. I hope you understand that. So much so that I'll even go to say that if there are some people that are not absolutely permanent, permanent insane, okay, but there are bouts of, you know, uh, um, but they, but, but for all intents and purposes, this person is gone in terms of sanity, not recovering, and so on and so it's forth. Very it's very rare that the person is going to come back from that. But there's obviously various degrees. There is an understanding from the culture of the Muslims that we still put them through the paces. We still put them through the motions and the actions and so on and so forth. The reason for that is not a religious one. It, it, it's not a legal one. It's a more religious cultural one. So that the person in their little bits of sanity or little bits of awareness still feels an identity which is linked to something that they can relate to. Because as we know, as we know, it's really important that you understand this, okay, that there is in Islam is far more than just a legal faith. It's a religious culture as well. And that's a big discussion which is happening at the moment. A lot of people want to try and take the culture away. Um, and frankly, in the public eye, this conversation cannot happen because it's so nuanced. But there is such a thing as a religious culture. Okay? Like for example, a hat. There is no such thing as an Islamic hat. Even the hat of the Prophet ﷺ, which is a turban, okay, is not a religious uh, uh, piece of clothing. The amama itself, the amama itself, is something which, as you probably heard a million times, was worn by Abu Lahab, by Abu Jahl, by all the Arabs. It is not a religious clothing. What's interesting about the amama, of course, is that there are a number of ahadith which talk about its virtue. If you wear it and pray, it will have 40 times extra reward. It will this, it will that. Every single hadith that mentions the amama is fabricated. Every single hadith which mentions the amama in a religious sense, I mean, is fabricated. Okay? However, there is an understanding by the scholars that despite, despite... And this is a matter of difference of opinion. I, this is not, that's why I said there's a discussion. Whenever you hear the word there's a discussion, it means it's not set in stone. There is a discussion that's, that, that throughout, throughout history, even though there are clear examples of people adopting various types of dress and mannerisms of the places which they go to around the world in order to not stick out, in order to kind of assimilate from a cultural point of view whilst maintaining a religious identity, even though that is well established and also the sunnah, there is also, conversely, an understanding that if one's own religious identity is weak or under threat or they're struggling, then they adopt a more kind of religious culture, whatever that means, in order to try and strengthen their internal. So almost using the external to strengthen the internal, even though that shouldn't be the case. And the best way that I can express this is something that I heard from a prisoner. Um, he was a black convert American. It was a profound moment. 10, 15, 20 years ago. I, I remember because it changed my way of thinking. Um, he, he said, uh, you know, they call, they, they, call, they call these kind of hats, you know, what she does wearing a kufi. 
you know, this black kind of normal hat, yani, you know. And that's what we associate with black converts, right? That kind of like, uh, you know, that black kind of, you know, tight Syrian kufi. It's called a Syrian kufi, this kind of hat. You know, like I have a white one I wear all the time, yeah? Syrian kufi. Um, and that black and white one is associated with the black convert kind of thing. And, you know, uh, we might say, and correctly so, there's no Islam in that. There's not, nothing Islamic. It's a foreign culture. It's an Arab culture. What do you want to do with the foreign Arab culture? He said, you know this, he goes, this gave me my identity in prison when everyone is against me. It, it, it made me feel like a Muslim. And it identified us in a very difficult circumstance and whatever. And you know what? We don't have the right to be able to denigrate or, you know, to, to deny him his understanding and meaning of that. We have the right to say, brother, you know what? Knock yourself out. That's fine. Just don't say this is the sunnah. Okay? And that's what we have to do as scholars, defenders of the religion, making it clear. But a person who wants to maintain an identity, or even, and this is now a side argument, which is the position of Abdullah ibn Umar, which is, you know, I'm not interested in identity at all. I just want to copy the Prophet physically. I know that yani, his clothing would never be worn in today's kind of, you know, I know it wouldn't be like that, and, but I just want to copy him because he is the best of all examples. Even though the ayah is clear, according to the majority of the companions and the mufassirin, that, that he is a uswatun hasana, a perfect example, means in his teachings, not in his personal habits. Yet in Abdullah ibn Umar, we have one companion who understood it in the entire holistic sense. And that's why he would walk with the same gait as the Prophet and he would undo the top button like the Prophet and he would yani everything exactly. And when he was asked, he was like, you know what? I could either choose to look like you or I could choose to look like him. And you know, I'm happy with that one. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's very difficult to argue against. And that's fine. But at no time did you see Abdullah bin Umar say that this is the sunnah. You know? But he said, I just, I'm copying because I love him. That's how I want it to be. And also, yes, this discussion gets bigger as well when we take it to the next stage. And that is that if a person today was saying, I want to do that, then really he should do it properly. Because a lot of people will walk around in a, you know, a thobe like this or something. You know? Or a white thobe or I don't know, whatever. And in actual fact, this whole thobe thing is not the Prophet kind of style at all. He, you know, if you want to dress like the Prophet you need to look like a Bengali, basically. Bengali stroke Yemeni. That's their kind of flex, Yani. Maybe some Somalis as well, Yani. No worries, I will chuck you in. You need to wear a lungi, Yani. You know what I'm saying? Yeah? You know lungi? Ma'awiz, Yani. Ma'awiz, yeah? What did the Bengalis call it? A lungi, yeah. Lungi, yeah. You know, uh, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi was a big lungi fan. I can't wear lungi to save my life. I don't care if I got rewarded to wear lungi, I wouldn't wear lungi. <laughs> ihram, yani, oh my God, that's pure torture from beginning to end. Don't get me started on ihram, man, come on. So, um, so there's another discussion there, but I'm just saying, I don't know why we, why we got, oh yes, we came to this. We came to this because there are certain, so in extension of religious identity having a role to play, even though it is not a sunnah, even though it's not rewarded for, we recognize its physical value, we recognize its yani, benefit. It has a role to play. And that religious culture for someone who is mentally unstable, ment not mentally unstable, mentally insane, 
or near thereby or whatever we don't want them to be pushed to the edges of society they already are mentally mentally impaired folks mentally insane folks are already and yani, abused enough as it is and that forgotten minority um, so to add more to that misery is like you know again again it's a difficult balance it's a difficult balance because you're doing two things you're one trying to protect the, the person's limited understanding of who I am and at the same time you want other people to not also denigrate the person and at the same time you don't want to cause a problem for the other people so this is where it can get so I've given you one side of the argument the other side of the argument is that you keep persisting with the prayer for a person who has no idea about the prayer can't keep focus on the prayer and we keep bringing him to the masjid or letting him come to the masjid or thinking he should come to the masjid and he disturbs all the prayers yeah because he's walking around or he's you know kicking people or whatever you know what i'm saying you know, we, we have that in this masjid for example okay all masajid will have this now and it will start to increase and get worse and worse of course as our older as our populations are getting older and a decision can be made for the sake of the jama'ah that we say you know what uh, to his children keep this man at home now he's done his time and at home go through the motions and it doesn't matter what happens in between whether he understands or not let him say what he says a lot of people ask me that my father is so-and-so my mother is so-and-so and they recite fatiha but they recite a hundred times they don't finish it i said that's no problem let them do whatever they can do so we don't say let them stop praying yeah we say they carry on praying and however they understood the prayer to be however they understood the prayer to start and stop that is exactly what they will be what will be accepted from them they are not obligated to finish the prayer as it would be from a normal person so you treat them a bit, bit like a child who's five years old for example yes like they're not obligated to pray exactly that you want to encourage in, in actual in actual fact it is exactly hmm. that exactly a child who you encourage, you want to in, in, ensure that the culture is there, identity is maintained, but they're not held accountable for what they're doing. Okay? And this is aside from the legal position. Okay, folks? I'm just, again, we didn't yeah, get to to finish the part. But um, anyway, that's no problem. That's why we call it logical progression, sah? And a bit more. Khair, let's take a couple of questions online first because we did a lot of questions on site and uh, we left my boys and girls on the, on the online machine. So go on. Yeah, autism, yeah? No, I don't think autism is a mental... It's yeah. Borderline. Yeah. I, 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 let me answer for all of these mental conditions that they're a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. It's the family and the professionals that will make a decision on exactly how sane they are. And that decision determines the legal acceptance of the prayer if they if everyone's understood what i just said in closing you'll understand that from a cultural point of view we still continue with the prayer yeah because to keep them in the game but in terms of legally is the prayer rejected accepted whatever whatnot then you know that's a decision depending upon how mentally impaired they are can i say medically some people who are having various sense of feeling guilty or whatever if you Try and force them to pray, or they'll get they'll get worse. Right, good. That's good. That's a good point. I've not done the prayer properly. I'm going to be punished. Yeah, they'll be even worse actually. Yeah, so, I, I, I think the nuanced thing. Yes, exactly. I think that's a good point, and uh, uh, it just goes to prove that if there, if if it is you know a, a, a medical profession, a medical professional understands 
that uh, the person is going to get worse if we keep putting the prayer upon them, especially when they don't understand or whatever, then that's a reason to not put the prayer upon them. And that's why, by the way, you know, often you hear on, you know, from scholars who are kind of uh, criticized for being harsh, Salafi kind of whatever, whatnot, yeah? Um, they often say, we will only accept the position of two Muslim doctors and whatever. You know, you hear that kind of phrase from them regularly. And, you know, why, what's wrong with the normal doctor? Well, there's nothing wrong with the normal doctor. So the Muslim doctor understands. That's the difference. The Muslim doctor has not just a medical understanding, but an understanding that just how much, how important it is for this prayer to be done or accepted or not and so on and so forth. And so, yes, you really do need to try and get a professional a Muslim if possible, if not, then someone who you can explain to them how important it is for this person that they should pray. But if in your professional judgment, you think it's making them more stressed, more worse, then they're the ones who are best you know, placed to make that judgment. We just don't want to let some secular, you know, uh, uh, secular, lassite, uh, loving, yani, whatever, okay, saying, prayer, sacrament, we don't want to play. I don't know. I don't know why I hate here. I really do. So if we follow the ruling that unconsciousness is more akin to sleep, and all the prayers have to be made up, does this also apply to the person who regains consciousness after a, pro a prolonged coma? Correct. If you take the position, if you take the position, like Muhammad Mukhtar Shankiti's position, that losing consciousness is like going to sleep, then if a person has woken up from coma after a long period of time, they have to make up every single prayer. But as we said, that's not the position here. What happens if you wake up because of the alarm or put, put it on snooze with the intention to wake up in a minute? However, you fall asleep and wake up after the time of prayer. Is one sinful due to the neglect? So, we're gonna, so this question needs to be asked next week because... Um, that section is next week, but just make sure they remember to ask that question next week. Um, two similar questions. Uh, I and my mother are both suffering from migraine, and during migraine, sleeping for many hours without any disturbance will get a bit relief. Uh, can we make up the prayer or the prayers later? And can, with these medical conditions, can one combine? Or <coughs> right. So the sister says that, or the brother, the questioner says that I have migraines and I need, you know, uninterrupted quality sleep to get rid of the migraines. Um, am I allowed to take such a sleep and miss prayers as a result? Or what, what do I do? And so on and so forth. The answer to this question, okay, even though again, it's also part next week, but I can say this now, is that it is not permissible to uh, intentionally go to sleep to miss the prayers, even if you consider it to be something which is going to help, quote unquote. However, however, it is permissible to do exactly that within the paradigm and the parameters of combining prayers on a case-by-case on -case basis. So for example, if a person, for example, worked, worked case example, I never get migraines and if I do, I get it once a year. And when I get it, it is absolutely a killer. And therefore, on that day when I get it, I'm going to make that decision to go to sleep at 10 o'clock and I will wake up at half past three. Okay, I know that which means I'm going to miss dhuhr completely. Yeah? So it is permissible for that person to go to sleep, to get that five and a bit clean hours of solid sleep with the intention that when they wake up, they will combine dhuhr with asr in the asr time. That is something which is permissible. 
This is called combining the prayers because of a valid need. It's a one-off, not to be done the next day and the next day and every other day, and so on and so forth. So that's a classic worked example. So that second, basically, what she said is acceptable. But to say, you know what, I'm just going to go sleep and I'm going to miss the next four prayers, you know, you know, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. Okay? In normal circumstances. Did you say extreme sports is permissible? Yeah. <laughs> Wallahi, to be honest, this question has bugged me for a long time. Long time. Are extreme sports permissible? And the problem is, is that I didn't wait for the answer. So, you know, that's slightly hypocritical, whatever I say. Um, put it this way, after lots of discussion, study, this, that, whatever, I consider the principle is that it is permissible. Allah <laughs> What's the caveat? The caveat is unless a particular sport comes which according to the uh, urf of the, uh, according to the general understanding of people is beyond the pale of normative safety. Okay, so let me give you a classic example. Scuba diving would be considered and was considered an extreme sport. <coughs> Okay, it certainly isn't now. Okay, bungee jumping, for example, is considered an extreme, an extreme sport. It's not at all. The, the deaths or the risk or whatever of that is minimal. Free climbing of a mountain, now that is flipping extreme. Because no ropes, no nothing, pure Sylvester Stallone hang. What's that film called? Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger style, you know. That's insanity. That's haram, 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 haram. Suicide. That's suicide. That's like suicide. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. That's crazy. So, I mean, who makes that decision? A group of people make that decision. You, you know, how do we come to that Islamic ruling? We throw the sport out and the people generally kind of, they calm at a certain name and then another one, they all start to go, whoa. The people generally don't get things wrong. So if something is seen to be way, way too risky and likely to cause death, it's not permissible to do. And if something is just dangerous, but majority people, majority people don't get hurt, don't have a problem, etc., etc., then I think it's difficult to say it's haram. Because remember, it is permissible in principle. Someone has to prove it to be haram. That's what also is the other point. If it was the other way around, that the sports are impermissible and you have to make it halal, it'd be a different discussion. But sports in principle is all halal. So you have to bring strong evidence to make it haram. So you'd have to prove that the rate of danger and death for said sport is so significant that we're going to have to make it haram. And that makes it, of course, much more difficult than the other way around. If we were trying to provide proof that makes a sport safe, then you'd have great difficulty. Yeah? So Allah knows best. Um, in regards to when you were referring to the word kafir, um, recently Numan Ali Khan's recent video states that Allah doesn't refer to all non-Muslims as kafir. For you to go around labeling others as kafir is just plain wrong and that's messed up. Don't label people as kafir. Your thoughts and response. Uh, so the brother asking, so brother's asking about uh, Numan Ali Khan, Ustaz Numan Ali Khan's recent comments on the word kafir 
and that not every non-Muslim is a kafir or whatever, something like this. Uh, it was a mistake by him, and he's deleted the video, and he's good enough to recognize that, so that's okay. Okay. So basically, the rest of the questions are in regards to medical treatment, like uh, morphine, brain tumor, medical uh, cannabis, and questions like that. Right. Well, should we take it now, this question, or should we... It's late, isn't it? Uh, do we come back to this? No, we don't come back to it. Let's try and sum it up in one question then. Let's sum it up as one question. You're saying that people are asking about morphine. Morphine, uh, medical. That's important because that happens every single day. Yeah. So, 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 okay. So you, you, you try to sum up the question. Morphine, I don't think is an issue. Morphine does not cause comatose states. It causes you to feel... It causes, obviously, depresses the, the respiratory system. starts to make you feel woozy, blah, blah. Um... If a person by such a high dose of morphine cannot, yani, is basically like intoxicated, then they don't pray at that time and they make up the prayer afterwards. And if the reason that they had to take the morphine was a, a permissible one, i.e. because of incredible pain that they need you know, to do the uh, operation or pain relief or whatever. The main one is terminal illness. They're not going to get better. They're going to be on morphine. Increasing doses, they're going to be out of it. What happens? Then? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. That's a really difficult question. Addiction, isn't it? The, the issue is not addiction. The, the issue is that if someone is, is in a hospice, uh, terminally ill, and morphine's function there, I mean, it's controversial because morphine there is not just being given to take away the pain, but it's almost like a, you know, well, hey, let respiratory depression, base, uh, you know, take them out. Basically, we're not gonna we're not gonna revive anyway. So the more they become respiratorily depressed, they're not gonna be able to breathe no, anyway. No, that's, that's not our Bro, no, shut up! It's not your intention, but that's not easy. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you right now that these doctors, when they give the happy yani, the happy. Happy button. The happy button. Yeah, exactly. They give them. They the button. Keep pressing. Each dose that goes in, they know that their respiratory system can't handle it. They know, Yara. Like I said, it's a great area. There's so many. Don't ask about things you don't want to hear the answer about. I'm going to walk out. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask about those things which you don't want to hear. Because, because, because the, the prayer is the least of the problems there. Let's deal with murder. Okay. Manslaughter. <laughs> Man murder. As for first, first degree, second degree, and then we'll come to missing prayers and whether you've got to make them up or not. Yani. Um, that's a big discussion. We'll have to leave that one. Uh, some yeah, go on. Right, um, I know someone who's, I know for 50 years, he has I've never seen him pray. He never prayed. So I always send him pray, pray, pray. Th that, inshallah, we'll do next week. He smokes weed. Just, oh, he smokes weed, right, smoke okay. Weed. So every time I send pray, he goes, look, I'm intoxicated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But he's actually fine. Like, he's talking to me normal. We've yes. been we, Yes. You know what I mean? He's called me all sorts of names. Yes. But he's fine. Yes. But actually, there's nothing wrong with him. Yes. But he says to me, I can't pray. Yes. So obviously, he's wrong. He can pray. And unfortunately, he's in a very bad place and he needs a real lot of help because... He is sinning for taking that, sinning for avoiding the prayer on purpose, sinning for not praying, having to make, having to obligatory make up that prayer when he does come round. He's sinning on like four or five different direct levels. He's in major, major problems like that. And a lot of people, by the way, just, just to make it clear, that when it comes to cannabis, 
weed, whatever, its intoxicating properties are not like the are not as pronounced as alcohol or so on and so forth. And so a person is pretty much in control. And we will not treat that person the same as a drunk one when it comes to telling them to pray. Because they are far more aware of their senses. Yeah? Okay? In which way would something like a brain tumor be considered? Is it treated as a choice of the patient and needs to be made up or not made up? No, no, I don't want to get into that discussion because I don't want anyone to take my personal opinion that medical treatment is not obligatory. I, uh, you take the majority position, which is that medical treatment is something uh, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down a da' wa anzil a dawa. He sent down the, po- the, 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 the problem, the disease, and he sent down the medicine as well. And so therefore, a person should take yeah, any, uh, precautions and, and do uh, operations according to the majority of scholars. And therefore, if they need to uh, be uh, uh, you know, uh, anesthetized as a result, then they should do that and then choose the position afterwards whether making up the prayer or not. I think that's enough, inshallah. We did a lot today. I think it was a good lesson, anyway, alhamdulillah. Um, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Jazakumullahu khairu subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta wa astaghfiruka Allahumma wa atubu alaykum wa alaykum wa rahmatullah.